This is episode 261 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. Patrons get access to over 150 additional episodes of our show not available on public listening platforms. Find out more and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Hi, I'm Rosalind Knutson, a retired professor of English at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's that Shakespeare life with my friend Cassidy Cash. But the object of the game in Laugh and Lie Down is to collect pairs of cards that go together. So you have eight cards each, and there are 12 face up on the table. And at each turn, you can play a card and capture either one or three cards of the same rank. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Happy birthday, William Shakespeare. It's Shakespeare's birthday this week, and to celebrate, we are going to play some card games. From Naughty and Maw to Laugh and Lie Down, card games were popular for Shakespeare's lifetime, with records from the court of King James and Elizabeth I outlining games played, losses incurred, and even insults traded between dignitaries all over the playing of card games. Shakespeare himself mentions a few of these games in his plays, including Naughty, Primrose, and Laugh and Lie Down. When it comes to early modern card games, no one knows more about about the games, their history, and how to play them than the internationally renowned game expert, David Parlett. If you're an experienced Shakespeare patron on Patreon with That Shakespeare Life, or you follow us on YouTube for the Experienced Shakespeare series we did, then you will have played some of these early modern card games along with us and be familiar with David's name, having seen and heard me mention his work as we relied on his research to put together those activity episodes. I'm very honored and quite delighted to welcome David to the show today to share some of the history of card games, how they were played, and their place in society for the life of William Shakespeare. David Parlett spent years as a teacher before becoming a freelance writer for Games and Puzzles magazine from 1974 to 1980. He is the author of the book, A History of Card Games, as well as The Oxford Guide to Card Games and The Oxford History of Board Games, among several others. David invented a board game named Heron Tortoise, first published in the UK in 1974, in Germany in 1978, and in 1979. The game received first Game of the Year award. Hare and Tortoise is still in print today, enjoyed by many around the world. David writes and runs his website, games.uk, where he details the history and mechanics of several card games and board games from Shakespeare's lifetime, as well as for centuries before and after the Bard. We'll place links to David's work, his website, books, and other details on David and his research into card games in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, David. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. I am delighted to welcome you here today as one of the coolest people I think I know of. It's just a joy to talk with you. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's rather enjoyable. I very rarely get asked about something that's so interesting. 
the history of card games is fascinating. And one of the things that we've come up with against rather on our show several times is I've read that French cards were particularly popular in Shakespeare's lifetime. And that starting in the 15th century, French manufacturers assigned to each of the court cards names taken from history, the Bible and mythology. Now that meant when you were playing a game, the face cards, as we call them today, or at least here in the US, would often represent real people. For example, there are rumors that Elizabeth of York had appeared eight times on every pack of cards in England for nearly 500 years. And there's another rumor that the Queen of Hearts represents Anne Boleyn, the second wife to Henry VIII. David, I'm sure that you can confirm or refute these specific rumors for us. And I wonder if there were any instances where particular card games were so closely aligned to the actual people because of the cards they represented that it might have been considered treasonous or even dangerous to play certain card games in public. Well, to answer your last question first, not that I know of. I can't imagine that that would be the case because I don't think anybody would regard them as uh, portraits of the people concerned. And you've covered quite a lot of topics in your introductory question. For example, you said that uh, you understand that French cards are particularly popular. Uh, That's not quite the way I'd put it. The fact of the matter is that uh, England first acquired playing cards from France, and naturally they used French playing cards with French suit symbols and so on. And these French suit symbols didn't develop until the end of the 14th century. So in Shakespeare's day, we're talking about 16th century cards, not, not 14th. But they were popular because they were available. There were English card makers as early as the 14th century. But because cards first came in from France and there was a good trade with, as far as the French were concerned, we used cards that were of the so-called Rouen design, which of course Rouen is in the north of France, so it's the nearest trading place with southern England. What was the next bit? It was about whether or not the individual cards actually represented historical figures. Like I I mentioned a couple of rumors that I've read about Elizabeth of York and Anne Boleyn being represented on the cards. And you suggested they wouldn't have been considered portraits, but were they at a local level considered representatives of real people? No, I don't think so. In fact, the the portraits, the pictures, the original images of the kings and queens were not associated with any people, uh, mythical or real. The card makers happened to put the names on them. Uh, I can think of a possible reason why they started doing that, and it only occurred to me today. It It may be because English well, card games of that period were very much influenced by tarot games, which were invented in the early 15th century. Now, tarot cards, as you probably know, most people now, nowadays only know them as fortune-telling and occult cards, but they were originally designed as a card game. It was a separate pack of cards from the playing cards that we have. And on the various characters on those had names, And I think the idea of putting names on cards came from tarot cards and ordinary playing card manufacturers thought it would be more fun if they attached names to the kings and queens uh, of the cards that we were using. But as I say, I only thought of that today. (laughs) So I haven't got any, um, any references to back me up on it. 
So would it have been more historically accurate for anyone trying to recreate a card game from Shakespeare's lifetime to use a 15th century French deck of cards rather than a 17th century English deck? No, it was in the late 1400s. So it was the late 15th century that the French developed their final design of cards. But by the time of Shakespeare, there had been such an influx of French cards that English card manufacturers requested uh, uh, the King Henry VII at that time to impose restrictions on their import. But we don't very know, know very much about cards produced by English makers before about the middle of the 17th century or the early 17th century. So it's just that they were the cards that happened to be around and you're not going to, if you're actually keen on playing cards, you're not going to bother about where they came from or what they represent. So I guess they didn't necessarily collect decks of cards the way I do at my house. (laughs) No, I shouldn't think they do. Uh, No, I think they were probably too expensive to do that. We have multiple records of kings and queens playing at, losing at, and causing issues over the playing of cards. But were playing cards a luxury for the elite in England, or would card games have been played in regular everyday households as well? They would have been played in the landed gentry and the aristocracy as, as well as the courts. And from there, of course, they would have trickled down. If you were a, a family that played cards and you've got your expensive expensively produced cards and they got worn out or something got missing or spoiled and you could afford to buy another pack, then they probably trickled down to the servants and uh, and so on. But in any case, playing cards in those days, I think we have to remember, was more of an urban pastime than, than a rural one. In the sticks, so to speak, people who liked to gamble would would have preferred playing dice games and perhaps backgammon as well. Let's look at some specific card game references that come up in Shakespeare's plays. In his play, Two Noble Kinsmen, Act 2, Scene 1, Emilia is talking with a woman. She says, I am wondrous merry-hearted. I could laugh now. And the woman replies, I could lie down, I am sure. I've read this as a reference to the game Laugh and Lie Down. David, can you tell us more about the game Laugh and Lie Down and what we should know about the history of that game when we see it come up as a joke here in this play? Yeah, yeah, it's quite quite interesting because it belongs to a family of games which otherwise is unknown in England and still isn't played much. It's related to the game that's played in America, uh, Casino, not much played over here, which in turn is an Italian game. But the object of the game in Laugh and Lie Down is to collect pairs of cards that go together. So you have eight cards each, and there are 12 face up on the table. And at each turn, you can play a card and capture either one or three cards of the same rank. And in that way, you gradually build up pairs of cards and and four of a kind of cards. Eventually, there came a point at which you didn't have any cards left in your hand to match any on the table. At that point, you had to throw the remainder of your cards at the table where they became part of the uh, collectibles, so to speak. And when you did that, that was called lying down or laying down, and people would laugh at you, and that's why the laughter came in. Uh, I should say, incidentally, incidentally, that I've never 
really decided whether to refer to it as laugh and lie down or laugh and lay down, because actually you lay your cards down, you don't lie them down. But no doubt there was a lot of punning going on there, uh, quite apart from the fact that even today, or perhaps especially today, most people don't seem to know the difference between lay, lie, laid, lane, lied, and so on. And the, the lie down bit obviously had some sort of sexual connotation. So that probably explains the Shakespearean reference in that case. Making all kinds of jokes for us there. And it's it's interesting that we have to be at least somewhat educated in grammar to understand it today. So that's <laughs> that's impressive. I must say, it, it, it just sort of flows better to say laugh and lie down than laugh and lay down. I agree. Now, on his website, David outlines the game of Naughty, referencing a 1610 publication by Jay Day as saying, quote, by playing too much at Primrose and Naughty, he lost time and his money too, end quote. Shakespeare references the game of Naughty specifically in his play Two Gentlemen of Verona when Proteus says, quote, that set together is Naughty, end quote. David, what records do we have about this game and do we know how it was intended to be played? The best descriptions of Naughty come from the later century, in the later 17th century, and one of them is particularly good. There was a character, an antiquarian called Francis Willoughby, who in 1665 or thereabouts was writing a book on card games, chiefly for his own amusement. It didn't actually get published until the early part of this century. But Noddy is, is the forerunner of cribbage. It's basically cribbage without the crib. And if you play cribbage, you'll know what that means. It's called Noddy because the central character was called Knave Noddy. If at the start of the game you turn up the knave, or the jack as we now call it, then it was called Knave Noddy and it gave you extra points when you played it or when you had it in your hand. But it basically is like cribbage and anybody who plays crib will know uh, how it goes. It's just that Noddy had a few more refinements and extra bits and pieces in it. For example, when you're in crib, when you're playing up to 31, you score uh, for when you make 15 and when you make 31. But in Noddy, you also scored for when you made up 25. So, yeah, that's it. And, and in fact, cribbage developed from Noddy by a simple process of coming to somebody coming up with the idea of adding the crib. That's to say each player throws out uh, two cards and then uh, the value of the cards in the, in, the, in the crib or box goes to the dealer. It's said that the game of cribbage was invented by Sir John Suckling, who was a courtier at, uh, at the court of Charles I. We had a lot of fun with the game of Naughty here on That Shakespeare Life. We um, got together a video where we played the game and tried as best we could to follow some of the uh, Francis Willoughby's publication included of of how to learn how to play it. So we have that video available on our YouTube channel as well as um, a full guide that you can print on our Patreon page if you're a patron of our show. We'll put links to those in the show notes so you can play this game as well. While not mentioned in Shakespeare's plays, I believe the game of Maw, M-A-W, was popular during Shakespeare's lifetime. At least it was popular at the court of King James I, with the rules for Maw being outlined inside the Groom Porter's Laws, which appear in ancient ballads and broadsides published in England in the 16th century. David, how was this game intended to be played? And was it brought to England from Scotland by Mary, Queen of Scots, James I's mom? 
I've never read anything to that effect, but it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, in fact, more or its equivalent was the na- more or less the national card game of Ireland, and it actually developed from a Spanish game, which we call Ombre, or it used to be pronounced Omba or Umba, and he's referenced as a lovely uh, passage in Alexander Pope and the Rape of the Lock about the play of umber or omba. But it's a very, very peculiar game if you're not used to that sort of thing. It's a trick-taking game, so you could start by thinking of bridge and whist and things like that. But it had several oddities in it, chiefly that in two of the suits ranked upside down, so the lowest card was the highest in value for capturing. So that was something you had to get used to. And they still played that way. Actually, the descendant, direct descendant of that is the game of 25, which is still regarded as the national card game of Ireland. Is it any relation to the game of gin or gin rummy? Nope. Oh, so different kind of trick kegging. (laughs) (laughs) Rummy games are definitely 19th century and onwards. Altogether. Okay. In the book Court and Character of the King from 1603, the king's chief cardholder is recorded as saying, quote, His majesty appears to have played at cards just as he played with affairs of state, in an indolent manner, requiring in both cases someone to hold his cards, if not to prompt him what to play, end quote. David, the insult to King James aside here, was it common when playing cards to employ someone as your cardholder, or did this position of chief cardholder exist only for James I? I would imagine that it existed only for James I and that it would happen because he was a great believer in the divine right of kings, which was not to do anything yourself that somebody else could do for you. Or maybe, uh, like the groom porter, it was a paid job, in which case um, people would be glad to do it. I know we would love to explore the history of early modern card games, especially card games from Shakespeare's lifetime further. And David Parlett's website is an absolute gem of a place to begin, along with several of his books. But David, as the probably the world's best expert in early modern card games here, what would you suggest we start with? If we've never explored this topic before, what are some reliable places to begin? That's very difficult. I mean, one thing I would say is don't begin on the internet because there's an awful lot of fake stuff out there. When I was researching, I spent you know a couple of um, decades researching history of cards and card games before my history of card games was first published. And this was in the days before the internet, and I had to do all my research from books in several different languages. Fortunately, i I was a French teacher, so that was a great help. There is one book which is worth trying to get hold of, though it's quite difficult, uh, and that's um, a book by the late Professor Sir Michael Dummett, who was a very highly regarded philosopher at Oxford University. But he was also an absolutely fascinated by tarot cards, and he wrote a history of tarot cards, And that is a vast book. And before he actually gets round to the tarot cards himself, he spends a couple of quite lengthy chapters recording everything that he's already discovered about the history of card games. So that was my starting point. And if you can get that, it's well worth doing. It's called The Game of Tarot, and it was published in London in 1981. Then again, if you read French, it's very worthwhile uh, reading anything by a French writer 
and researcher called Thierry de Paulis, who's written, for example, an excellent history of bridge, and he's one of the leading experts in the history of card games. But perhaps the best thing to do would be to join the International Playing Card Society, because that publishes a journal which frequently includes descriptions of card games. It's true that they're very often local and regional card games from all over Europe or other parts of the world, but these in themselves have a long history, and nobody will write about one of these without saying where it came from, when it started, and so on. So that's the best thing to do. Those are excellent resources. Thank you so much for suggesting them. We will place links to these where you can get book copies. Or, of course, your local library is a great place to begin and take a list of these authors and titles, and they can help you find places to read them as well. David, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Well, I don't think I would take any fiction with me because it would eventually wear itself out. And in fact, being a member of the Religious Society of Friends, I would actually take a book called Quaker Faith and Practice, which is full of extracts of writing from Quakers from from the past 350 years. I think I'd get a lot from that. I think that is an excellent selection for your desert island choice. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, I'm excited about something which I will probably never finish because I'm getting on in years now uh, that I've been collecting a lot of information for. On my website, you will find somewhere uh, an article that uh, a paper that I presented once trying to understand where games originated and how they how they developed as a human activity. Now, I've read a tremendous amount of anthropology in order to do this. And I'm taking as my starting point the fact that all intelligent animals play games or engage in activities which we can class as playing games. And since mammals and birds and so on do this, it seems to me obvious that uh, precursors of the genus Homo must have done the same thing. I want to know what they were playing millions of, uh, well, thousands of years ago. So I've been collecting a vast amount of uh, information relevant to that subject. But I can't really see myself ever finishing it, but it's something I think about a lot. That sounds like a fascinating subject to explore, and I know you're going to enjoy it. David Parlett, thank you so much for being here today, sharing with us this fascinating history of early modern card games and helping us understand better the kinds of cards and card games that were being played in Shakespeare's lifetime. It's an honor to speak with you, and I thank you for being here. Thank you very much, Cassidy. If you enjoyed the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Leave us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. If you'd like to see some visual history that coordinates with the card game history you're learning about today, including pictures of some of the French playing cards that we talked about, especially those Rouen designs, as well as some of the documents, archival history and primary documents that we have for James I and how we know some of the games that he played, those Groom Porter's Laws, all of this stuff is packed into the show notes for today's episode, along with more details on David's books and some of the resources that he recommends you check out if you want to learn more about the history of 15th to 17th century card games. You can find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 261. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 261. 
If you enjoy playing early modern card games and you like diving into Shakespeare's lifetime and really trying out pieces of this history for yourself, then you should check us out on Patreon. Our experienced Shakespeare tier on Patreon is specifically designed around a set of 12 activity kits that we've created that walk you through games, recipes, and crafts straight from the life of William Shakespeare, including the game of Naughty, the game of Maw, and the game of Laugh and Lie Down. There are activity kits there that have a video you can watch that show you how the game is designed to be played. And then there are accompanying printables. So you'll have a supply list and a step-by-step instruction list, along with a bonus history guide for the specific games. Find these things along with all of our back catalog information for our patrons, all at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. It's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.